Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we explore cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. My name is Emily Feda, and I will be your guide as we converse with scientists, physicians, and clinicians about cannabis and other psychedelics. We are back for season three, and the show is continuing to evolve. I really believe in taking a holistic approach to understanding cannabis and psychedelic medicine, and all of the elements matter. Everything from the soil and the pesticides used to cultivate plants, to how these medicines affect our body chemistry, to the set and setting in which we use and integrate this medicine and these experiences. I've been listening to your feedback, and in this upcoming season, we're still going to be digging into the chemistry and biology of these plants, but we're also going to be spending more time exploring the psychological realm so we can better understand how these medicines affect our brain and our behavior. So stay tuned. I really hope this season pushes the edges of how we understand cannabis and psychedelic medicine. As always, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us on Instagram, cannabis underscore science underscore today. Um, Also, I'd love to hear from you via a five-star review on iTunes if you're enjoying the show. And finally, if you have any guest suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email me, cannabisciencetoday at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'm so excited to share this upcoming season with you. Today we are featuring Dr. Clancy Kavnar, who is a clinical psychologist with a long-standing research interest in psychedelics, particularly in ayahuasca. She is a co-editor of a number of books, including The Therapeutic Use of Ayahuasca and Ayahuasca Shamanism. In this episode, we talk about the potential healing benefits of using ayahuasca, especially when it comes to treating trauma and addiction. When we use psychedelics in general, but especially ayahuasca, there tends to be this numinous or spiritual quality to these experiences that we can't always capture or measure with scientific tools or the scientific method. But it really is this spiritual component that sometimes creates this strong and profound foundation for change. So I think it's so important to talk about it, even though we don't necessarily always have these double-blind, placebo-controlled tests that we have with other psychedelic medicine currently. So I'm really excited about this episode. Dr. Kavner is such a pioneer when it comes to navigating, you know, the realms of Western clinical psychology and the spiritual world um, of ayahuasca. Before we dive in, I want to make a quick legal disclaimer. Ayahuasca is only legal for use in the U.S. when it's used through a registered church, such as certain branches of the Santa Daime Church or the Uniao du Vegetal. Um, Ayahuasca is legal in other countries throughout the world, such as Brazil and Peru. So if you feel called to use ayahuasca or you connect to this episode, I really encourage you to do a lot of research and just understand the, the nuanced legalities of using this plant. Well, Clancy, first of all, thank you so much for for joining us. And I know that you are a clinical psychologist um, working with patients in the Bay Area. And you also have this longstanding research in in psychedelics. And your your PhD dissertation explored gay and lesbian people's experience with ayahuasca. So so if you wouldn't mind traveling back in time, um, could you tell me what what was the inspiration for this initial research? Well... I remember like the spot towards going towards the Civic Center BART station that I thought that's what I'm going to do my dissertation on because I had previously been thinking of doing it on like children, very early infancy. <clears throat> um, and it's an important topic that what I was going to do, but then I just, I don't know. It, it, it's because I, I'm a member of Santo Daime and I had been going for a number of years and when I first went, I didn't tell people that I was gay because it was a completely weird, different experience for me. And everyone was speaking a foreign language and I was in Brazil and it just, I just didn't feel that safe to do that. And I went back a number of times to this town, Mapia, that's in the middle of the Amazon. It's very isolated and it it's really like 20 years, um, like 20 years old in, in, it, take, it will take it 20 years to catch up to the United States. So it's very much like the 50s there. And 
I felt, you know, people had said anti-gay things while I was there. And I, I drank ayahuasca for the first time, well, first time in San Francisco, but then I went down there and did a series of, of ayahuasca ceremonies. And whenever I thought about being gay, I, I, it was a great thing. It was like connected to love and it was, I never saw anything bad. And when I heard people saying like in the ayahuasca religion, which of, which is Santo Daime that, that, you know, was bad or was a, a perversion, it just didn't ring true for me. So that's why I wanted to do that research to see if other people, like I was sincerely interested <laughs> to find out if other gay people who drank ayahuasca ever had the notion that it was, that being gay was bad or that they needed to change or that it was sinful or like, I mean, I, granted I was in a Christian environment, which for some reason seems to imply it's also anti-gay, but it's still like, and so when I did my research, I, I with people from, from North America and Europe, many people had the idea of like, well, people are going to drink ayahuasca and they're going to see that gay people, being gay isn't bad and they're going to homophobia can't stand up to the light of ayahuasca and all this other like very idealistic stuff that that is in fact not true but for people in North America everybody that I interviewed and everyone that I've spoken to since then which is many people who you know had heard about the research nobody ever said that they drank ayahuasca and felt that it was wrong for them to be gay so I just want to say, not to go on too much, but but in Brazil, there are people who drink in the Uniado de Vegetal and Santo Daime who do say that they used Alaska to give up being gay and get married to the opposite sex and have children and, you know, the whole thing. So it's not everybody. And I think it's, of course, it's like set and setting and all of that. But you asked me, but that, that was my my inspiration. Wow. So uh, were the people that you interviewed for the dissertation, were they, were they all North American, you said? Or, or European. Or European. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, everybody wow. was North American. Wow. That's, that's an interesting, an interesting way to, to start the, the research. And for a listener who is not familiar with ayahuasca, how would you describe it to them? <laughs> um. I guess it's very, very, I laugh because it is hard to describe, but it's a, it's a tea or a, it's, it's not tea. It's, I guess a tea is accurate. It's a, the bark of the Banisteriopsis copy vine that grows in subtropical areas and the leaf of the Psychotria viridis, which is in the general family of, of coffee um, it's a bush and, or a tree and you mix those two together and they have psychoactive properties because the, the MAO, the, the, usually if you were to eat something that has DMT in it, your body would just deactivate the DMT and people do eat things that have DMT in them all the time. But if you take something that has very high concentrations of DMT and you mix it with something with the, the vine, it, makes it possible for the DMT to actually go into your brain, which gives you hallucinations or visions or more understanding than you would normally have. So that's the basic effect. And then along with that, usually or often people will vomit or have diarrhea or sweat or cry or do all these other purging activities that scare away a lot of people from ever trying ayahuasca, but it's, I just would like to tell people that that's not, shouldn't let that stop you if you feel called because it's not like throwing up when you're sick or throwing up when you're drunk. It's not that sickening feeling. It's more like release that feels great when you do it. So, and yeah, it's, it's the, the purging. It's just a, yeah. And it's many times practiced by indigenous people in South America. And there's also, Santo Daime and the Uniado Vegetal and another church called Barquinha that are organized like Christian religions around ayahuasca that use ayahuasca in a, in a different way. So I just want to always put in that plug because people often forget that, that there are these ayahuasca religions and it's not all shamans. 
Yeah, actually, that would be great. Could you give us some history on how the plant has been used historically in these different um, indigenous societies and churches? Um, as much as I know, I'm not such a, 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 I've read a lot. So there's, people don't know how old ayahuasca is and people will say it's thousands of years old, but they, there's no proof for that. The most proof they have is that it's like 300 to 500 years old or that they have records of. So it could be older because indigenous people aren't, aren't writing down, you know, dates and stuff like that. But it, it was prevalent in in South America and Ecuador and 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 Colombia and and Brazil and Peru um, and Bolivia and they think it spread throughout South America through a lot of a lot through missionaries who would travel with people who with indigenous people who would then teach the people that they were encountering about so it's kind of ironic because usually the and then what's the real irony is that these three christian religions formed out of it um Santo Daime is the one that i'm a member of and that was formed in the 1930s this um rubber tapper this very tall black um grandson of slaves um met some indians and they gave it to him and he had a vision of the virgin of conception telling him to sing and so he had a song just like in indigenous cultures it's very tied in ayahuasca with music and singing so he was taught this song and he went back to his friends and he sang it for them and then invited them to drink it and so then they formed the church in that way and then there's the udv which i'm not going to go into the whole all of the religions but um and the the way that most people um in north america no ayahuasca is to is from Peruvian shamans and especially Shipibo shamans, and they work. It's a it's a whole um, evolution of the way that we Northerners have come to see the indigenous people giving us ayahuasca as sort of like this authentic thing, but it's not really authentic for foreigners to come and you know Americans right. or whatever to. So our, what, what used to happen or what, they, what anthropologists say was that usually the shaman took the ayahuasca and then did the healing on the client. But in, nowadays, of course, it's everybody drinks ayahuasca and then the shamans will treat people like in the maloka, in the, at the ceremony individually. Mm-hmm. And so in Santo Daime, it spread to Europe and the United States and Japan and all over the world. And shamans are visiting all the time, different places. And in addition, there's many, many circles in North, North America and Europe that are practicing regularly, like any night. I'm sure there's hundreds of ceremonies taking place. And in fact, I just looked recently on Eventbrite. I put in an ayahuasca ceremony just out of curiosity. And a whole bunch of stuff pops up. Oh, wow. So, they're like not being afraid. There was a the church in Florida, Soul Quest, which is was petitioning the DEA for permission to use it as a church, which got rejected just recently. Um, so just I know you didn't ask, but I'll just say very briefly that uh, ayahuasca is not legal to use in the United States unless you're a member of the Uniado Vegetal, which is called the UDV, or some branches of the Santa Daime have permission, but everybody else could be tagged by the DEA and have their medicine taken away and theoretically those people could be arrested and so I don't know what's happening really what's going on with the DEA and I have a, a friend who has a church in in Arizona Joe Tafur who's trying to get his church legalized and he's gonna he wants to go through the steps of of doing that and he's trying to get like money for lawyers and it's a very expensive and time-consuming thing for him to do but like there's so many people doing this. Someone's along the line it is going to go to court. So, wow, yeah. Well, that's that's a, a great segue to to the next thing I'd want to talk to you about, um, which is your your the book that you co-wrote, Therapeutic Uses of Ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And it, it sounds like prior to this book, there was a lot. Of, there were many anecdotal reports on how mm-hmm. people used it therapeutically, but there wasn't this systematic review. 
So obviously yeah. this is a big topic and a long book, but, but where do you start when you explain the therapeutic use of ayahuasca? Well, I think that there's a lot of folklore about it, but the, the ways that I've seen ayahuasca be most healing are for people who have trauma and for people who have addictions, which of course is closely, closely related to trauma. And the book cover, it's been a long time since I've looked at that book and I, I didn't actually write it, I just edited it. So there's many esteemed people that are way more uh, knowledgeable on the topics that they wrote about. There was one person in there that, that did a study of people that claim to have physical healing. And I know that there's another guy that I know that, that did a study on um, people who have cancer who went to use ayahuasca to heal themselves of it. But the people that I know, and like I'm a therapist, so I talk to also my clients who have drunk ayahuasca. And it's mostly stuff like we can't keep all of our the stuff that causes our personalities to change or traumas or whatever in our mind in the forefront and go on living and doing being successful every day. And people go and reach for that stuff in therapy. But when you drink ayahuasca, and I don't want to repeat this trite thing, but it is, like people have said, it's like having 10 years of therapy in one night. So, and it's so fun to work as a therapist with people who drink ayahuasca because they have so many insights and so much like, you know, material to work with when they when they drink ayahuasca. And in my opinion, that's the the main way that ayahuasca is healing. Although it's like, there's research on it being like, perhaps helpful for Parkinson's disease, for neurological things, for Alzheimer's or anything that affects your, your nervous system and your, your brain. It, it, and I'm not a scientist, so I hope you do find a, a, a scientist to interview about this, but it, it increases like plasticity of your brain and makes it possible for you to learn new things that are very deep, like you can change patterns that you've, that you've had for a long time. So really, I was working on this project that kind of got put in a hold, I think, called Project New Day. It was to help create materials for people who are addicted to substances to help them understand how ayahuasca can help them treat their, their addictions. Because if there's anything that it's really good for, it's that. And there's there's actually a center in, there was two, but now there's just one. There's the center in, in Peru called Takawasi, which I don't recommend because of the it's rather homophobic leader, Jacques Mabit, but it is a place that's been operating for years, treating addicts using ayahuasca and has, you know, successful successfully doing that. And there's also been studies. There was a study by Anya, um, oh, I'm blanking on her last name, but it, she did a study in, in on addicts, like a, a study of alcoholics and addicts in Mexico, I think. I'm not sure if it was in Mexico or Germany, but she was like, the results are very clear for those kind of things. And I, I hope that in the future, that's going to be something that people are going to because it's a very bad problem that has very few like useful treatments for and ayahuasca is definitely one of them mm -hmm. yeah I think you were, you were what you touched on was really interesting to me and and as I understand it um with all psychedelics but especially ayahuasca there's all of these different parts of it there's the science of what's happening in the brain which is like the decrease in activity in the default mode network. Um, and there's this relational piece too. So what's happening between the participant and the shaman or between the therapist and the patient. But then there's also this spiritual element. And that's kind of the hard thing. That's the thing that's difficult to measure with scientific instruments or, or with tools or, um, you know, even some of the measurements that are available in, in clinical psychology. So, so I'm wondering, what do you think, like how much of the psychedelic experience can, can we actually measure? Is it the science that's the most important or are there all these other things too that we, we have to take into account even though we don't necessarily have the language for it? Yeah, I think science is legitimizing. And so I, 
I'm happy to see research and hear people with like data being presented to other people so they can, but to me, that's not the most interesting part. The most interesting part is like the potential that it has for people to have insight into, yeah, religion, like in a very broad term, like your role in the universe and what, what are you supposed to be doing here? In, in my research, when I did my dissertation, a couple of people came up with the idea that they were like, they drank ayahuasca and they realized they were on a mission to heal themselves or heal other people. Or they came to earth for a reason. And I think that is such a big like difference between people who are happy and people who aren't is it's people who think that they have a motive, that they're, they have a reason and they're doing something meaningful or they are someone important and who should be doing, whose actions are meaningful in the world. And like, just like, they don't have to be big actions, but just feeling generous or feeling kind or doing, you know, things that are for other people's benefit and not just your own. Like it, it, it's like positive psychology is this field that just talks about like the good things, the things people can aspire to. It's not about trauma or fixing neurosis or anything. It's just like, and when I was reading about positive psychology, I thought very much about ayahuasca and how like a good person, you don't have to be like a tortured person to get a great benefit from ayahuasca to realize like how great the world is or to realize whatever level of comprehension you can possibly have about your relationship to God. And, you know, I, it's so transformative to have those experiences that when you're talking about earlier about the healing capacity and I said, well, it's, it's great for addictions, but like AA is based on people having a spiritual experience in order to come over, overcome their addictions with ayahuasca just drink the drink and you have this spiritual experience. And unlike like psilocybin or ketamine or other substances, it's like ayahuasca has a, like a persona, a, a teacher inside of it that will show you a lesson. And each time you drink ayahuasca, you get a lesson. And sometimes you can't understand what the lesson is, but many times it's just like, whatever it is that you need to change, it, it zeroes in on that. And I wonder today, like, how does it know? Or who is knowing this? Or who's teaching me? If I already know this, then, you know, how come I'm not acting on it? And, it, and if I don't already know this, who is telling me? And that's, you know, a head scratcher, but. Yes, no, but but that that was my exact experience of it as well. And I, I feel with psilocybin, you, you're more in the driver's seat of the experience. And mm -hmm. and then with ayahuasca, it was it was shocking to me because it's I, I wouldn't describe it necessarily as a loss of control, but it's like, yeah, there's a guide, there's a mother in there, and, and it's very difficult to to describe that. But yeah, um, yeah it, it is very um, I think that's very true. And, and that's also that, that thing about surrender is like, just trust this teacher knows more than you. And they're showing you something that you, if, if you fight against it, you just make yourself unhappy and you won't learn the lesson that it's trying to teach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you did touch on this um, a bit, and I'm sure you see a lot of patients in the clinical setting who, who don't take psychedelics or, or haven't done an ayahuasca ceremony and, and what do you think is the difference between treating a patient through um, the talk therapy model or cognitive behavioral therapy versus the uh, working with a patient who has undergone, um, you know, use psychedelics, obviously outside of the, the um, therapy room? Um, yeah, and I can't wait for, well, I will wait, but the day that <laughs> is psychedelics like in session, but it's just like, like, it's a super accelerant. It was an accelerant for me to get past so much stuff so quickly. And like, I can't encourage people to do it because it's sort of, in Santa Daime, we there's a, like a rule of not inviting people or encouraging people, but you can let people know how it works. And then if they say, wow, that sounds really cool, then you can talk to them about like where they can do it. But um, I kind of got lost there. 
Yeah, but it's just an accelerant. And you had mentioned it's like 10 years of therapy in one night. That is something that many people say and then, but it's true. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like a cliche that I have to say, like for the first couple of times that people drink ayahuasca, and I've been drinking many, many times, so it's different for me now, but like so many revelations, it's just, and I'm like working with people who in therapy, just like so much material comes up. We could work all year on just like their one ayahuasca experience and the stuff that they realized and the relationships that they saw through. And yeah, it's such a pleasure. I really like it. Mm-hmm. So in the community that, that I've been in um, for ceremonies, I've met a lot of people who have gone through these really profound changes that we're talking about. So, you know, someone can go into a ceremony being a really heavy smoker and then come out and never crave a cigarette again. But on the other side of it, I've also met people who have done many ceremonies, you know, 25, 30 ceremonies, and they're, they're still struggling with some of the same issues. So I'm wondering, why do you think this happens? And does there need to, does, what needs to happen either prior to the, to the experience or afterwards within the integration piece in, or, in order to have this lasting change? Well, it, it, it definitely works better for some people than for others. And for some people, it, it has a bad effect. It, it causes them to feel like narcissistic or like they're super great and that they don't want to look at their flaws. They, they kind of get filled up. They get shown like a very beautiful version of themselves, I think. And then they don't want to look at the ugly parts. So that's one difference. And I don't know how those people are different from the other people, but it's not that common, but you can see it in like ayahuasca circles. I don't know if you can see it in yours, but there's definitely people in Santa Daime that became full of themselves because they felt the power of the medicine and sort of mistook it for their own personal charisma or something. But there's people that have worse trauma. There's people who like for someone who would have a very, you know, revealing episode for their first drink, it could be someone who repressed memories of sexual abuse. So that would be a big change of from like, you know, one to 10 on, whereas somebody who was already working on that stuff might not have such a big revelation. It, it really depends on the person. And, and it's not like, you know, 10 years of therapy, for one person, you know, some people need like 50 years of therapy. So <laughs> it all depends on, and also like some people just don't like the medicine or they, they can't ever relax enough because it's just too charged for them to do any real work, all different factors. So for the people who it works for, and I count myself among them, I feel very lucky. And I've drunk many, many times. And I started in 1997 and had my most powerful like realizations and work in the past like five years or six years. So I don't know if I had resistance or things just weren't clicking for me. And like, I always enjoyed it and I always got something out of it. And I feel like it's my path and everything, but it wasn't until, so I was in Santa Daimian, but I had been drinking with shamans of indigenous shamans on and off in different scenarios. But then I went and drank with some Shipibo shamans and just had like all this stuff that I didn't really put together, all put together for me. And like, it was revelatory. And like I said, I must've been like 500 ayahuasca ceremonies in. So I don't know. (laughs) If that's an encouragement to people or discouraging, but you know, <laughs> well, yeah. it happens when it happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think that there are certain times in a person's life where they're going to be more receptive to the medicine? So, um, like if a if a person's really you know at their rock bottom or going through um, a major depression, do you think they'll have a a different experience than you know if things are going pretty? Um, pretty well there aren't really a lot of outside issues Um, are are there ever any like warnings that you give to people on when they should do it or 
um, in order to have, you know, a good experience? Um, well, I think to have a good experience, you should be rested. And I think it's better if you're not in crisis. It's better if you're in a composed state of mind and like ready to relax, to surrender to. So that's not being upset or in crisis. And I wouldn't like, yeah, I think people drink it when they have like problems, like grief, for example, someone dies and you want to drink ayahuasca and connect with them. But like if you're angry at somebody or, you know, really hurt or you just got dumped or something, I, I don't think ayahuasca is going to be especially helpful to like make you feel better. I think it might show you like the reasons that relationship went wrong or something, but it's not going to be like a comforting, like it, it's more like a teacher. So if you need to learn something, that's when to go, but not, not in a bad state of mind. And also to be like, I know some people fast beforehand, but in the Santo Daimi tradition, they say eat a good meal, like three hours beforehand, be well rested, be in good shape, don't be distracted or don't bring a, an angry mind into the, into the session because being receptive and open and, and grateful is really the proper attitude to have. So I think the best time, and then also I, I would like to quote or refer to Master Irenea, the guy who founded Santo Daimi, who gave ayahuasca to hundreds of people. And he said that his favorite group to give to was, was people, adults over 40 years old, because they had already had enough of life and pondered the questions and been frustrated and had like problems with kids or whatever. They had already had a big dose of, of life and then to give them ayahuasca and see how that affects them rather than to like teenagers who are still like everything's cool to them and everything's weird and they want to try everything. You know, it's more mature people who actually have worked and tried and suffered through like trying to overcome their problems or trying to overcome habits or addictions or fix relationships. And to pour ayahuasca on that is and see the results is, is gratifying. So I think it's not, I think it's good for all ages, but I think people who are like mature enough to have encountered like frustrations and blocks are very grateful to get the help from ayahuasca. Yes, yes. And you're also co-editor of a book called Ayahuasca Shamanism. Um, and, and I'm wondering kind of based on, um, you know, the, the history of, of ayahuasca ceremonies being led by by shamans how how do you see us being able to integrate this medicine into western culture into um psycho psychological medicine in the u.s and of course you know it's not currently legal um but I'm wondering kind of what do you think it would be the best case scenario over the next few years, decades, um, in terms of making this medicine um, accessible and available to, to people who, who need it, but, but might not have the resources to, to go to a ceremony in the Amazon? Yeah, so go on Eventbrite and just Google. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then my other my other caveat to that question is, is, of course, you know, bring it to the U.S. in general. There's all this risk of cultural appropriation, or you know, the the gringo shaman, or or the person who's not equipped to lead this kind of experience. So, yeah, yeah, I just want to put all of that out there, and then everyone can get on Eventbrite. <laughs> it's it's crazy to think that like of all the substances that they're proposing to use for mental health purposes, ayahuasca is the least, is the like the genie that's the hardest to cap, cap, capture in the bottle because like I was talking to some people we were talking about doing some research on PTSD. This is several years ago. And we were like, well, we have to get the office to like, maybe we could get some like indigenous music playing and then we'll have like candles or we'll have... <clears throat> and then we're like, well, but what about the shaman? <laughs> it's like, well, it's, if you bring a shaman in and you do the research, how can you say it was the ayahuasca and not the shaman that had that caused the effect? If you brought in a different shaman, maybe it would be. So it's very difficult to do research on it. Yeah. It's it, like it, observational studies are what's been done, and and there was 
the only one that I know of, of um, Dralio Raju gave one dose of ayahuasca to people in the hospital setting who were, who were depressed and they had a really good result and they enjoyed it and they didn't feel depressed anymore. So, I mean, that's some proof that it works even without a shaman or without any kind of like, like I think they were just in a hospital bed. They didn't attempt to make it into a, a groovy maloka or anything. No drugs. So, yeah, I don't think they, maybe they had music that like ayahuasca without music would be bizarre, but I mean, in order to get the purest result though, I, I would think it would be better if they just show, like if you drink it and you're depressed, it has a chemical effect on you. It's, it pumps your serotonin and you're going to feel less depressed and maybe have some insights into, you know, your life. But like, I, I, I think it's very difficult to think of how a scientist is gonna like a even a therapist like and I've been drinking ayahuasca like I said for a long time but I would not want to lead an ayahuasca ceremony for my clients or you know it just <laughs> I don't know I that's a very good question and maybe it's one of those things that's never going to be able to be bottled and sold by pharma and it's going to always have to be the group of people and someone who is trained like Santo Daime you just have to have drunk it for a while and know the rules and be able to compose yourself in a ceremony. But like shamans do years of dietas and like it takes a long time and a lot of deprivation to, to, to become a shaman. So I don't think it's, that's also something that you just can't like walk in and, you know, put the outfit on and just do it. So I don't know how that is ever going to get <laughs> brought into like our, our culture, except through like, turning it into a new age thing and having like, which is happening and having like neo new age neo shamans give it. And you know what, it's still gonna work. Maybe it won't be as effective and those shamans won't be doing the type of healing that, that authentic indigenous shamans do, but ayahuasca will is capable of healing people if you drink it and lie in the dark, even if no one's there, so. Yeah, that's a very good question, and I don't have a good answer. Yeah, so you definitely don't see it going the route of, you know, kind of what we're seeing in the MDM, the MAPS MDMA trials, um, no. where it's therapist and patient, um, you, know, you know, patients lying there with the blindfold, that that wouldn't work? It's, it seems, like, I know people who do individual work with people using ayahuasca. People in Santo Daime will, you know, ask someone to sit with them or... But yeah, I don't see that as being like, and in these ayahuasca ceremonies, the shaman is drinking ayahuasca and in Santa Daime, everybody's drinking ayahuasca. Like, are we gonna have the therapists drinking ayahuasca with their client in a session in, that they're paying for? Like it, it just, and also there's, I guess it's, it's mostly in Santa Daime, but it's not to exchange money in return for ayahuasca. So, I don't know. I, we're in America and they exchange money for everything. And, but it just, it seems like a, a sacred thing rather than a medical thing. It's a, your relationship to ayahuasca is like your relationship to God. It's your, it's like a pathway to God. And so mm -hmm. it's different than just a medical treatment. And I know psilocybin is also a pathway to God and people have religious experiences on it, but I know people and myself who have taken mushrooms for fun in nature and joked around and, you know, marveled at the beauty of nature and stuff. But ayahuasca is like, it just demands a ceremony. I don't know why. Yeah. And I think there's also something towards the, the community of it. Um, because after, I think one of the, the benefits of doing a ceremony is afterwards is you have a group of other people to integrate with who can understand it and yeah so so that's also i i think that the the community around it is important too because once you go through this experience if you're it's really hard to to go to go back and have no one to talk to who doesn't understand it or hasn't gone through it well there is also the model of perhaps of having people go to indigenous shamans or go to ceremonies and then come back like they do in therapy it doesn't have to be a, a, a 
a therapist giving it to them, but we can talk to them about how it worked for them. And, you know, I have said like, well, next time you go to ceremony, why don't you think about your dad or whatever? Mm-hmm. And then you know, then they can report back, but I don't think it's going to be, so how is pharma going <laughs> to get its hands on ayahuasca? I think maybe it's ayahuasca's trick for staying out of pharma's hands to make it so that it's just too complicated to set up an ayahuasca ceremony that is going to in some way enrich of a, a, a pharma company of some kind. Yes. And I'm interested in what you just said, like next time you go into ceremony, think about your dad. Um, because I mean, of course, when you go into a ceremony, you, you, you know, you can set intentions, but my experience has not been, my experience has been the, the medicine took me where it wanted to go. I didn't really get so much of a say in it. So, so do you think that that's possible to kind of direct your ceremony towards healing, like a particular thing that, that you're working on? Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I have clients that go and we talk, I mean, it's not me coming up with like, think about your dad, but they are working on their, you know, their issues. And the more we talk about it, when if I know that they're going to go to an ayahuasca ceremony, it's like, you're already working it into like, so you want to know why you're, you always fight with your boyfriend. So let's look into that. Think about that. We talk about it and then set an intention around that. And maybe, you know, or maybe it would be something totally like wild. Like you won't even know that it's about an uncle or something that will come up and, or she'll come up with something about some completely different area that ties in, in a way that you would never, I would never have known that it could or expected it to. And sometimes, yes, of course, it won't, it won't seem related at all, but I think usually it, you can make those connections and ask those questions and get them answered because it's like magic. Yeah. So do you think shamanism is something that you can train a person to do? Yeah. I mean, that's how shamans get there. I, I guess I mean more like, yeah, kind of through, obviously in these churches and in these communities. And as you mentioned, like they just do a number of ceremonies and then they're part of the community. But um, I feel like in, in more indigenous societies, like people were selected and, you know, displayed separate specific traits. Yeah, but it, it's not always from birth. Like somebody could like the the guy in Niue Rao, the center that I went to last in Peru, was rejected by his parents, raised by uncaring relatives, became a drug addict, was on the street, and was super depressed and and got taken in by a shaman who said, okay, I can help you, but you have to do everything I say. And he was like, I don't know, in his 20s, he had no like star on his head to show that he was going to be a shaman or anything, but he agreed because he had no other options and he was, you know, feeling terrible. And then he became a very renowned shaman. So I think people pick to be shamans. People are chosen. And, you know, a lot of times in Peru, at least, it seems like, you know, this guy had a tree knock his eye out and now he only has one eye. And so now he's going to be a shaman because he has this special mark. But I think people who are like now too, shamans are like shamans in South America are welcoming non-Indigenous people to learn what they're, what they have to teach because the Indigenous youth are not as interested. Maybe they're more interested now that it's becoming more popular, but like having a, 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 an interest in it and being willing to do these, like, like doing a year long dieta, seeing no one and not having sex and eating like very minimal and bland food. Like that's a commitment. And the people that want to do that, like that's more convincing to me that they want to be shamans and they receive their songs doing that. They, so even if it's a, like a white guy from Petaluma, it's still, you know, they learned and they, did what it took and I trust their sincerity as a shaman and you know I think that can work yeah yeah so when you were putting together the book ayahuasca shamanism um, and there were a number of 
authors who, who contributed pieces in that. What, what was the most interesting thing that you learned from that project, putting that together? Um, well, that was the first book that me and um, that Bia and I did. And it was at a, a conference in Heidelberg where, I mean, it was all super new to me. I was in Germany and, you know, conference of people from all over the world that knew all about ayahuasca. And I was just so impressed with like the depth of their knowledge. And I guess the, the one of the chapters that stuck out for me the most was, was and I can't remember the author's name right now, but it was on shamans and the people who come to see them on how they both misunderstand each other, but by misunderstanding each other, they still accomplish what needs to happen. Like the shaman telling the, the Westerner, like there's spirits that are gonna come and the Westerner sort of interpreting that as being like angels or they'll like, it was all about how, how two completely different cultures can accomplish a healing with neither of them really understanding what the other one's talking about. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what it is with, with North Americans who go to Peru and like even ones that, that go through the training, like they don't speak Shipibo. They don't, they weren't raised in that worldview. They don't know the myths that, or they can be taught them, but they, you know, it's just, it's a totally alien um, to Western thought style that goes around ayahuasca and so I don't know if we can ever really I think it's imitating and and some of the imitation is very good and that gets into the question of authenticity and people are demanding like it's not an authentic shaman but most people like I said they don't know what it is because authentic shamans work in their community they don't give ayahuasca to gringos and they don't have a big maloka where 30 people lie down and like, that's not authentic. So the people doing it, it's this quest for authenticity in it's, it's not, it's, there is not really any authenticity unless you were to like go way deep into an uncontacted tribe and see how they do ayahuasca and somehow try to insert yourself in there, which would sort of lead to it being an inauthentic experience anyway, because they don't have gringos coming and inserting themselves into their ceremonies. So, yeah, that, that's exactly what, what I was thinking as well. Like, the, it, I think there's, it's such a positive, of course, now that we know how effective ayahuasca can be when it comes to, to um, healing, but, but then to, to be on this forever search for, for the authentic experience, we just, as, you know, within, um, as people in, in the U.S., we're probably not going to have that just by yeah. default of us, us being there and participating in it, so. What do you it will be for us, though. I just want to say, like, we don't have to feel bad because we're not indigenous, right? Like, ayahuasca will still still work. Yeah, yeah, and I and I always think about that in in some of these conversations too, because I I, I really think you know, psychedelics and, and ayahuasca, especially. I mean, these are these plants are are here to to heal the world and to heal people, and so so it's hard for me to imagine, you know, a people in an indigenous society, um, especially because their mindset is they don't have that capitalistic kind of hoarding scarcity mindset that we've developed in, in many parts of the Western world. So it's hard for me to imagine that they want to hoard it and only have it um, there. Right. I don't so, think they do. What do you think about, because um, what do you think about some of the um, ceremonies that are being held in, in, um, like I, I was reading about um, a series of ceremonies that were being held between like Israelis, Israeli and Palestinians um, as kind of a, a, an effort for peacekeeping and just developing relationships between um, those two groups of, uh, of people. And yeah, is that something that you could offer insight in at all? I don't know. I don't know if I have any insight on that. I think it's a great effort and um, I know that they just released an, an article and a review of that, but I did not get to read it yet. So I don't have an insight about that. Just off the cuff, though, like 
I think it, like if the goal, if the intention is to like heal that relationship, I can't think of anything better than ayahuasca that could be used as the, as the means to do that. And to wrap up here, uh, I just have one final question. And I'm wondering if you could, if you could answer any question about ayahuasca and its therapeutic use or how it works or, or anything, uh, what would you like to know? If I could ask any question, who's answering? Well, Anybody? maybe the ayahuasca is answering, <laughs> but, but whether that comes from like a research perspective as, or, um, you know, a question on how it could be effective, like what, what are you, what would you most like to know? Um, this is really hard question to answer. What would I most like to know about ayahuasca that I don't know? Who's behind the curtain? <laughs> Who is that that's talking to us? And you know that that's the mystery to me. Like, and I hope it will be revealed when I die. I think it will be. <laughs> like, and I already know the answer. It's us, but it's a you know if. We are God, we're like 99% God, and then we're that 1% of just really rock hard confusion. So I guess I, I don't know. I think ayahuasca does show me everything that it can and the other stuff I'm, I, I think I will learn when I'm dead. Wow, wow, okay, well, that's a great answer. <laughs> cool, well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, for sharing all of your, your wisdom and, and your personal experience, too. I really appreciate um, how, how much you opened up here. Okay, well, this is my pleasure, and I hope more people understand ayahuasca better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.